And I want to issue a particular welcome to those who are guests, those who are here for the first time. We're very, very glad that you are here with us, and we hope that you'll find a, a welcome and also some instruction that will be of help to you on this important topic. For those who are guests, those who are here for the first time, let me set your mind at ease because you come to a church and you have us talk to you about money, then that probably scares you and probably for, for good reason. But let me set your mind at ease by promising you, one, that you will not be asked for anything during the seven weeks that uh, we will be together. Starting today and then for six weeks thereafter, we'll be looking at the material in the workbook in front of you. But you will not be asked uh, to give anything. Quite to the contrary, you will be given the workbook that you have in front of you. If you're here for the first time, then that's our gift to you as advertised in the mailer that perhaps you would have received. And so we won't ask you for anything. We give you the workbook. We also want to give you a gift as a token of our appreciation for being here. It's a, a box gift that we give to all of our guests. And if you'll stop at the welcome table on the way out, it's just outside the back door here, then we'd be happy to give that to you. And we hope that you'll also be given this day and each week you come back a warm welcome, but also instruction. You will be given instruction, important instruction on an important topic. And I think that you would all agree that we need instruction on this important topic often, but particularly during the times that we're living in now and experiencing in our part of God's world. It's a very challenging time for all of us, for which we need uh, instruction that can help us with this issue of finances and money. Now... The instruction is going to be from the Bible. And that shouldn't be much of a surprise to you. If you got our mailer, you saw that it's sponsored by our church, Community Baptist Church. So hopefully when you go to any church, the Bible is going to be the source from which the instruction comes. The instruction we're going to look at today and in the weeks ahead is going to come to us from, from the Bible. And the title of the series is Managing Our Money Notice, God's way. And in order for us to know what God's way is, then he has to have told us. The good news is he has told us about himself, about ourselves, about how we are to interact in his world, what he wants us to accomplish in the pages of a book, the Bible. And so you're going to be given a number of things in these weeks, not ask for anything. You'll be given a book and a gift on the way out, and you'll be given a warm welcome, but you'll be given instruction and that instruction is going to come from the Bible, which we believe to be God's Word. There's going to be much talk then about God and the Bible, but you're going to find this. You're going to find that, contrary to what many people think, the Bible is not just a collection of stories that have no relevance to the practical areas of our lives. Many people, unfortunately, have come to believe that nothing could be further from the truth. Consider if the Bible is indeed God's Word, and I don't know everyone here, but there may be some here who don't know that or don't believe that. But just for the sake of discussion, assume that, that if the Bible is God's Word, then it would follow, would it not, that it is the most relevant book in the world. I mean, if it's really a book God wrote, then the one who wrote that book knows you better than you know yourself. If it's really a book that God wrote, then he knows our struggles 
and the source of those struggles and the end of those struggles, where they lead, the consequences that follow much better than we do. If it's a book that God wrote, he certainly knows why he put us here and how he intends us to use the things that he has given us in this world for the ends for which he intended them. And so you'll hear much talk about God, much talk about the Bible, but it'll be very relevant talk, particularly focused on this issue of money and finances. With that, then, turn in your workbook to the table of contents. I want to show you from the table of contents the way your workbook is laid out and the things that we will be covering, and then we'll get into the introductory lesson. But the table of contents right at the beginning of your workbook you see that there are six sessions, and today we will have the introductory session for a total of seven. So we advertised a seven-week series, counting today, six more weeks then, and we will look at what God has to say about money and finances in those six sessions. And so you have several pages associated with each session, and each week we will go through them, starting today, and there will be blanks for you to fill in. And I will give you on the screen the words that go in the blanks as we move along, and I'll amplify what is said in the workbook with some explanation and illustration, hopefully in a helpful way for you. You look at the middle of the table of contents, it says group development, small group resources. From pages 99 to 111 there, none of that applies to you because we're not in a, the kind of small group setting that the publishers uh, identified of a group of 10 or 12 people so in a larger group like this, we won't be doing the things that are on page 99 to 111, but they're there for your enjoyment. But the very bottom of the table of contents, it says appendix, forms, and worksheets. At the end of each lesson, during the week, when we're apart, in anticipation of coming back together, there is some work for you to do in the workbook. So at the end of today's session, there are some worksheets for you to begin filling out. In each of the seven weeks, there'll be some work for you to do outside. Now, none of that work is going to be checked by us. This is all for your benefit. And like any course you take, you are going to benefit to the extent that you are willing and able to put into it. And so that's what's referred to at the bottom of the table of contents when it says forms and worksheets. The end of each session has all of the sheets that you need for that particular session. The end of each lesson has all of the sheets that you need for that particular session. But there are additional forms and worksheets because if you're like me, you mess some of them up. And so you need more. And so there are extras in the appendix. That's what that's about. And they tear out. They're perforated. In addition to that, there's a CD in your workbook. And the CD has uh, reproducible worksheets and forms. So you can have as many and print as many as you want. It also has some tables that will calculate for you some formulas if you put in the figures. So you'll want to avail yourself of that, of that CD as you do the work on your own in the uh, times between our sessions together. Our time together and our 45 minutes together, each of these seven weeks, we're going to go through each of the seven sessions that begin on page number three. If you'll turn to page three... We'll look at the introductory lesson together. Page three, introduction, the big picture. 
And we begin with this premise, this foundational principle, that everything that you have is a gift from God, that everything that you have is a gift from God. Now, that assumes some things. That assumes, first of all, that God is, that there is a God who owns and therefore is able to give. Everything you have is a gift. Those, those gifts come to you from one we call God. So it assumes that there is a God. I'm not going to take time to prove to you that this God exists. And here's why. Because I know that you already know that he exists. I know that because every person has been given enough evidence, more than enough evidence, to know that we did not arrive here by ourselves, but rather that we were created. All that we see around us shows us the creation and therefore points to, of necessity, a creator. We all see design, and it points to, then, the necessity of a designer. And so this notion that everything you have is from God assumes that God is. I don't try to prove that to you, and it may surprise some of you to know the Bible does not try to prove that. It starts with this assertion. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And so the Bible does not attempt to prove God. It assumes we are creatures of the Creator, and we know that He exists. Everything you have is a gift from God. It assumes that God is, and you know that. And it not only assumes that God is, but it assumes that because he is God, he was here first. And the stuff that he made, because he made it, he is the owner of it. He can use it as he pleases. He can distribute it as he desires. And so God is. He was here before we were since we are created and he is uncreated, the creator. He owns everything. And everyone knows that, which means that there really is no such thing as a philosophical atheist. Some of you have heard me say this before, but there is no such thing in his or her heart of heart, heart of hearts as someone who is a philosophical atheist, that everyone knows that they are creatures of the creator. Many people suppress that, they want to deny that, do not like the implications of that, but all people know that. There is no such thing as a philosophical atheist. That's why the Bible will say this, the fool has said in his heart that there is no God. And the reason the Bible says a fool says that is because foolishness, as some of you have heard me teach in the past, is not the same thing as ignorance. Ignorance means I don't know. Foolishness means I know, but I fail to appropriate what I know. I fail to use what I know for the purpose for which that knowledge was given. God has given ample data, information, proof that he is. But many people, some, suppress that truth and thus foolishly do not use the knowledge that God has provided for the reason he provided. There are no philosophical atheists. Everyone knows God is. He was here first. He owns it. No philosophical atheists, but there are very many, very many, and you may fit into this category. There are very many practical atheists. You know what I mean by that? People who in their heart of hearts know that this God exists, that we are beholden to him, that life is ultimately about him, that the principle that's at the top of page number three, that everything you have is a gift of God, they know all of that, 
But in practice, in their everyday life, they don't live that way. They don't live in a conscious relationship with God, thinking about the relevance of my relationship with Him to each area of my life. And so I have compartments that I live in, many of us, that God is not part of. I have my relationship compartment, and I have my leisure compartment, and I have my work compartment, and I have my health compartment, and I have all of these compartments. But as I go through life and I play the various roles associated with each of those boxes, I'm not consciously and intentionally thinking about God. And what does He tell me about my relationships? What does He tell me about my work? What does He tell me about my health? And when we fail to do that consciously, intentionally, think about what God says about those areas. Even though we know He exists, and even though if asked to fill out a sheet of paper about what we believe, we would say, yes, I believe God exists. Practically speaking, we are living as atheists in those areas of our lives. And that's true in finances. It's really true in finances for so many of us. We pursue our finances as if God is irrelevant to this particular matter. It gets us in trouble. Many of us are here. Many of us know we need this. Because though we believe in God, we've acted as though God were irrelevant to this particular issue. The good news is this God who made us is a loving and gracious God. And even though I have done that many times in many areas of my life, and you have as well, including this area of finances, a gracious God gives me a second chance and a third chance and a tenth chance. And so the good news is you're here, we're here together to see what he has to say in his book given to us about this issue of money and finances. So everything you have is a gift from God, page 3. And it says that God wants you to partner with him in accomplishing his purposes on earth. And I just stop there for a moment to have you just ponder that. God wants you to partner with him in accomplishing his purposes. Those first few words, God wants you to partner with him. Don't skate over that lightly, friends. If that's a true statement, it is a statement of great privilege and honor. God wants me to partner with him? We can just see those those as words on a page without contemplating their, their significance. The God who made me, the God who is above me, the God who so often I ignore in my practical atheism, this God wants me to partner with him? Think about the the awe of that, the privilege, the honor of you, me, being a partner with God in accomplishing his purposes on earth. And it goes on to say God really isn't interested in watching you fulfill your dream for your life. He wants you to fulfill his dream for your life. Now, when it says God wants you to fulfill his dream, don't get the idea that God is sitting up there, ever has been or ever will be, just saying, wouldn't it be cool if... Because whatever God wants to happen, he has the power to make happen. 
So when it says God's dream for you, it's not God is hoping you'll come through for him to fulfill him somehow. Let me be very straight about it. God does not need me. God does not need us. That's what makes the first statement so incredible. God wants you to partner with him, despite the fact that he can accomplish everything he needs without me. He doesn't need me. But in his goodness, he has chosen, chosen to allow me, to allow you to partner with him in what he is doing in his world. And so God is not incomplete if we don't come through. God is, God's going to be okay. Look at the second paragraph. If Christ truly is your king, then you live in a kingdom different from the kingdoms of the world. Christ's kingdom has a different set of rules, a different set of values, and a different economy. Notice the word different used several times there. If, if you're going to do this now, if you're going to consciously acknowledge God in each compartment of your life, including finances, you're gonna, this is what you're going to find, that you're now marching to the beat of a different drummer. You're going to go a different way than you have been going. You're going to go a different way than most everybody else is going. It's going to be different in so many ways if you follow what God has to say. But that raises a question, at least for me. Why should it be so different? I mean, if, if God really is, and he is, and if God really made us, then it really should follow that that shouldn't be unusual at all. That's what everybody ought to be doing, right? But it, forgive the grammar, it ain't that way. And the person, the man or woman, the boy or the girl who says, I am going to begin to follow what God has to say about every area of my life, that person is going to find themselves different. And that's why the word different is used. It will be different for you. It will be better, but it will be, it will be different. And it will be so radically different that it may be hard to get to the better. Because there are many changes that are going to have to be made as we will see as we, as we go forward. So why, why is it that most people don't do this? Why is it that if you do, you will be so different? You will be in the minority. You'll be marching to the beat of a different drummer. Why is that? Here's why. You all familiar with a product, any product you buy that says, you know, the, the warranty is only valid if used as what? If used as directed. And some of you are familiar with the Bible enough to know that there's this three-letter S word that, that scares us, but it's used a lot in the Bible. It's, it's called sin. And you could define sin a lot of ways, but as it, at its essence, here's what's going on with sin. We're using what God has given for purposes other than that for which he gave it. To put it another way, we're using God's stuff for ourselves. To put it another way, we're misappropriating God's stuff. To put it another way, we're stealing God's stuff. And that's why it's so different then, because we have not been using what God has given 
for the purposes for which he gave it. We haven't been using it as directed. What happens when you use a product other than the way it was intended? It can be very dangerous, can it? Many of us pursue life that way. If not in every compartment, in some of the compartments of our lives. And we don't use as directed. And when we don't use as directed, we suffer the consequences just like with a chemical, a house cleaning uh, supply any product that's intended to be used in a particular way if misused can and will cause harm and that's what happens for many of us in our lives and so as a result you start doing what God has to say everything's going to appear upside down you're going to appear upside down to everybody else you need to be prepared for that you see part of the reason you started using God's stuff and I started using God's stuff in ways other than he directed. Part of the reason we did that is because we cared too much about what other people thought. Fill in the phrase. Keeping up with the what? Right? And so many of us just say, boy, I just wish the Joneses would move out of my neighborhood. You know? Just keeping up with the Joneses. But why do I care about keeping up with the Joneses? Because I care more about what the Joneses think than I do about what God thinks. And you can apply that not just to money, you can apply that across the board. And the minute I care more about following the crowd than I care about following God, then I am going the way of difficulty, the way of negative consequences in every area of my life, including finances. So if Christ is truly your king, you're going to live in a kingdom different. It has a different set of values, different set of rules, and a different economy. God's purpose for you is much, much, much greater than you could ever imagine. But you will only achieve that purpose if you use what he's given as he intended. In Christ's kingdom, then, we understand the purpose for earthly wealth is to invest in, and on the screen, you got the screen there, Phil? In eternal treasures, eternal treasures. In Christ's kingdom, the purpose for earthly wealth is to invest in eternal treasures. So, the purpose for which God gave you the stuff you have is not all the reasons that everybody says. It's not first my happiness and fulfillment. It's not the American dream. It's not keeping up with the Joneses. It is to invest in eternal treasures. And Jesus said as much. The verse is there for you in the middle page. Three, do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasures where? In heaven, where moth and rust do not destroy and thieves do not break in and steal. Now, here's what Jesus is saying. It's a, it's, it can be a very frightening implication to what he's saying there. What I do with the things he's given me on earth has consequences for heaven and eternity. I can then use those things as intended, as designed properly, and it will be a very good eternal heavenly reward, or I can fail to do that. That's a very convicting thing for me and probably for you as well, if you'll be honest about it. 
if I'm misappropriating what God has given, if I'm not using it for the purpose for which he gave it, then that can be a very frightening thought. Don't dwell on the frightening thought too much because the good news is God is gracious. You're here. He's giving instruction for how to change the course and the direction that many of us have been headed in our finances. And if we do that, at the beginning, at the outset of a series like this, focusing on this particular area of finances, then we will be heading in the direction that God has intended for us, achieving the five purposes that he has for all of our lives. We're called to, and you see them listed there, worship, and to fellowship, and to grow like Christ, to serve others, to be on mission for God in the world. But who is it that does these things? Who is it that God has called for his purposes to worship and to fellowship and to grow like Christ and to serve others and to be on mission for God in his world? Who does that? Is it the superstar types? Is it the Green Beret sort of Christians in God's, God's army? And the answer throughout God's book, Scripture, is absolutely not. It's regular, ordinary people. Notice the verse there. I will bless those who bless you. Whoever curses you, I will curse. All the peoples on earth will be blessed. And those last two words, through you. And the one through whom that happened, many of you know, is a fellow named Abram. And the truth of the matter is, there was nothing special about Abram. God placed his grace upon this man and used this man for God's purposes. And God desires to do the same thing with ordinary people like you and like me. But it means you're going to have to surrender your life. You're going to have to say from the outset, God, I want to follow your approach. I've been following my approach. I'm going to follow your directives now. It means surrendering your life in one of these many compartments that you've been withholding, that I've been withholding, called money, finances. And that's very hard for many of us to do, let's face it. Very hard. Particularly with money. You know, I saw this, uh, heard this deal where a guy comes up and he's stuck up with a, a gun. He's going to be robbed. And the guy says, your money or your life? And the guy goes, let me think about that. I mean, it's really sad, but many of us would have to think about it. My money or my life? Because money has become our life for many of us. And if money has become my life, then to say, I need to surrender that to God becomes a very difficult thing indeed doesn't it? And so we're going to have to make a decision to surrender our lives. We have to disentangle ourselves from the old way of thinking. We need to understand, bottom of page three, that God desires to work through ordinary people, ordinary people with ordinary finances. And so as you come to this and you say, I really do need to get it together in this area and I really do need God's help and I do recognize, Pastor, what you're saying, that much of my problem has been that I've been living in practical atheism, at least in this particular realm. And I haven't consulted what God has to say about it. I want to change that. Well, it means I'm going to have to think differently then. Think radically differently. Bottom of page 3, see the verse there? Do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world. But be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Be transformed by thinking differently about every area of life, including this important area of finances. In the mailer that you received to come to the series, 
We said on the mailer, did you know that there are 2,350 verses in the Bible on money and finances? 2,350. So as you're going to change the way you think, God has given you lots of information to reorient your mind and how you view your finances in Scripture. And we're going to look at all 2,350 of those together over the next seven weeks. We'll look at it. We'll look, we'll, we'll look at several of them. Look at page number four. As we reorient our thinking then, away from the world's pattern and to God's pattern, let's see what the difference is there. You see the world's pattern on the left? And it starts right in the middle up at the top with acquire. And so I amass stuff. I, get a, I go to college or I get a trade, a skill. I get a job. I start get, making money. I acquire. But why do I acquire it? So that I can use it for God's purposes, right? Wrong. The world's pattern is, I acquire it, and then as you go to the left, so I can enjoy it. So I can do what I want with it. So I can pursue up my dream, so I can keep up with the Joneses. Pursue the American dream, whatever it is. Acquire, enjoy. Amass some debts. Repay. Continue paying bills. Try to save a little. Perhaps give a little. If all else fails, make a plan at the end. And God's approach, God's pattern is completely different. Notice it doesn't start with acquiring. It starts with amassing to ourselves. It starts with dedicating. It starts with acknowledging, first of all, that what I am and what I have are what we said at the top of page 3. They are gifts from God. And so I dedicate myself and what I've been given to the one who gave it starts there. I dedicate. And then I make a plan. I plan my life around the purposes for which this one has made me and what he has said in the book that he's given me. And I plan my priorities and my spending, my habits around that. I dedicate and I plan. And notice one of the first things I do is I give. Because that's one of the things God has told me to do, told you to do. And I have money to give because I've taken this approach, not the other approach. I give, and I save, repay, and yes, enjoy what God has, has supplied. So if we're going to do what we're instructed to do from God's Word and do it in tangible ways in these six sessions that are going to follow, we need to have the big picture in mind, how we fit into God's world and His use of finances in His world. In the middle of page 4, God wants to do something of eternal significance. Eternal significance through your life. Notice the passage there from Proverbs 29. Where there is no vision, the people are unrestrained. Now sometimes you hear that verse used by politicians or other people in a way that it, it's a, is it not actually its original intention. Sometimes I heard one politician say a few years ago, quote that verse, and he was talking about his vision for the future of our country. Well, it's true. It's good for politicians and leaders to have a vision for where they want to take the people that are following them. That's all good. That's not what that verse is about. When it says where there is no vision, do you all remember that one of the ways God used to communicate his truth before the Bible was completed, one of the ways he used to do that was through things like dreams and what? Visions. And what the verse is saying is, when God doesn't tell us what to do, in those days, often through things like visions, 
When God doesn't give us direction, then people are unrestrained. People have no clue what to do, why to do it, where to go, when to go. And so what we need is revelation, truth from God. The good news is God's completed the book. And he's given you the instructions. And the Bible says of the Bible, your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. God wants you to do something of eternal significance, but you will only know what that is and how to pursue it if you look at the book and the instructions that God has provided, if you'll do that. Here's what I'll predict for you. You'll be rich in 30 days. I'm glad you're laughing. Because this is no get-rich-quick kind of thing. You may not get rich at all. But here's what I can guarantee in all seriousness. That you will have deep and abiding and true satisfaction in your life. Because you will know that you are pursuing what the one who has placed you here intended. And you're doing it in the way that he has told us. And whatever then comes out of that, whatever circumstance he places me in, I, will, I can be satisfied. You find that with God's people throughout the pages of Scripture. Here's what I will guarantee you. I will guarantee satisfaction satisfaction guaranteed as long as you define it the way God defines it in his book God's vision God's truth God's revelation changes how we live in every way it changes our values our our priorities our way of life at the bottom of page four if we fail to do this it has devastating consequences for our relationships for our homes for us individually Look in the box there, the Gallup poll, 56% of all divorces are the result of financial pressure. And so we get married, perhaps. We get out of the, get out of the house. Maybe we're single, but we're having to you know, make our own way now. And we haven't consulted God on, on any of this. And so we just start doing our own thing. We start amassing. We start spending however we feel like on whatever we feel like. And then the pressures start to come. And I have to work more. And very quickly, they're become, and she has to work more. And maybe I have to get another job, and the economy goes south. And we haven't saved anything to help us through a difficult time like this. And now those pressures come to bear upon us. It's no wonder then 56%, is it? And then we find at the end of the month, there's too much month and too little money at the end of the, the month, Right? For most of us. And so it puts that pressure upon us. God wants you, bottom of page four, to be financially free because he has a plan and purpose for your life. But if you're tied up in financial bondage, you can't be free to be used the way God wants to use you. And so if you look at page five, and as you do, just think about that. Do I want to be used the way God wants to use me? If that's the case, I cannot, I cannot be in bondage in my finances. And this is an important issue, as illustrated by the fact that 2,350 verses are in the Bible about money. One out of every six verses in the first three books of your New Testament, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, is about material possessions. Nearly half of Jesus' parables are about possessions. And Jesus spoke more about money and how it's used than he did about heaven and hell combined. And so you can see it's an extremely important issue. 
Now, why does God talk about it so much? Here's why. Because money is the fuel that carries us where we want to go. Money is the fuel that carries us, that takes us where we want to go. So why does Jesus talk about so much money so much? Because it's the fuel that takes us where we want to go. But our problem is we have been wanting to go in a direction into a place opposite what God has said. And so Jesus talks so much about it because it is bound up in our purpose and in our direction. It's the fuel that takes us where we want to go. Here's the way that sentence should be stated. Money is the fuel that takes us where we should go. Not just where we want to go. Money's the fuel that carries us, takes us, transports us to where we should go. And that's why Jesus talks about it so much, so often. Now, there are two misconceptions about money that we need to explode in order for us to move ahead in the coming weeks. The first misconception is this, that money is evil. That's a misconception. Now, you say to yourself, you know, I know there's a verse somewhere that says money is evil, but we have the real verse for you there in the notes. It says that the love of money is the root of all evil. It does not say money is the root of all evil, but it is the love of money that is the root of all evil. There is actually no condemnation of wealth in the Bible. The problem is not to have wealth. The problem is what I do with the wealth that I have. So money is not the root of all evil. It is loving money. And that's why the statement, if you make money your God, it's going to plague you like the devil. Now, as you think about making money your God, you could exonerate yourself very quickly. You sit here and you say, well, I know I haven't made money my God because when I think about anything being my God, I think about something to which I physically bow down. I bow my head. I pray to it. Those kinds of things. I've never done that with money. I'm guessing you've never done that with money. But you need to understand you can make someone or something a God without ever physically bowing down to it. If it dominates your priorities, it's become your God. If that person dominates your priorities and your scheduling and your thought processes and your energies, it or they have become your God. And when understood that way, many of us would have to admit that if not all the time, certainly there are, t there are times where money has functionally become our God. And it is that love of money rather than love the Lord your God with all of your heart and all of your mind and all of your soul, Jesus said is the first and great commandment and the second is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. But instead of loving God supremely, I love someone or something else, then that has become a functional God. The Bible calls it an idol for me. So money is not evil, but the love of money very much is evil. Here's a second misconception. Money, that money is the key to happiness, that money is the key to happiness. You see, friends, the Bible teaches this, that we are to love people and use money. But if you love money, you'll end up using people. And because it, in your mind, is the key to happiness, then you'll be willing to go places to acquire it. 
Do things to acquire it. Align your life and your priorities and your schedule to acquire it in ways that were not intended by God. Money is the key to happiness. What a, what a, what a myth. John Paul Getty uh, was one of our uh, industrial barons at the turn of the last century. J. Paul Getty was married five times. If money made people happy, the tabloids would not read the way they do, would they? All those people have money. Money is not the key to happiness. Howard Hughes, you all know Howard Hughes? He was a billionaire. He lived as a recluse, a very, very sad individual in, indeed. And so money is demonstrably not the key to happiness. And that's why Jesus said, notice the middle there, Luke 12, 15, a man's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. Your self-worth, hear this, this is a cool statement, if I do say so myself. Your self-worth is not your net worth. That's what Jesus is saying there. Your life does not consist in what you have and what you own. Your worth is bound up in your relationship to the God in whose image you were made and whose character you were designed to reflect it is not bound up in your bottom line and in your net worth. But if you think money is the key to happiness, then you will think that my net worth is my self-worth. And you'll pursue it with all that you have. And that's why Jesus issues warnings like that. He says, notice the verse, What shall it profit a man if he gain the whole world and lose his own soul? The only way for money to make you happy is for you to give it away. You give it. You show that it doesn't control me. Money's not my functional God. And we're going to see some principles about how to do that as we move forward. Proverbs chapter 3 and verse 2. It's not in your notes. Proverbs 3 and verse 2 just says simply this. Wisdom brings prosperity. Now, if you know what wisdom is, wisdom is not knowledge. Wisdom is the application of knowledge. Foolishness is failure to apply what we know. And if you apply what God says, the information that he's given, then it follows, proverbially, that prosperity will come, will come after. We need to understand, notice the blanks here, that financial freedom is not determined by how much money you make. It's determined not by how much you make, but how much excuse me, by how you spend what you have. You see it on the screen. How you spend what you have. You see Proverbs 21 in your notes there? Stupid people spend their money as fast as they get it. Well, that's pretty blunt. It's also true. It's stupid to spend our money as fast as we get it. In other words, most of us don't have a money problem. Most of us don't have a money problem. We've got a management problem. So if you're sitting here right now at the beginning of this series and you're saying to yourself, my big deal is I need to know how to have some more money. Your problem is not money. It's how you manage the money that you have. Now, how are you going to manage it differently? Look at page six. We'll be done. How are you going to manage it differently? We're going to need something called self-control. 
And one of the fruits of the Spirit in Galatians chapter 5, beginning in verse 22, love, joy, peace, so on, is self-control. That God gives self-control. But without self-control, it's a pretty neat phrase, without self-control, our yearning capacity is going to exceed our earning capacity. Our yearning capacity, what's that mean? It means the stuff I want, the stuff I yearn for, the stuff I desire. If I don't have self-control, then what I yearn for, what I want, what I desire is going to exceed my earning capacity. And that's what's happened with many of us. I want it. I haven't consulted what God says about how to use it. I pursue it for my own enjoyment. I yearn for it. I desire it. And it easily exceeds my earning capacity. Friends, when you come to the end, when I come to the end, the question that God is going to ask every one of us is not how much money did you amass. He will not ask you that. There are no, you've heard it said, no U-Hauls behind hearses. You're not going to take it with you, and God's not going to ask you how much of it you had. You know what he's going to ask you? The two things we have on page 6. What did you do with Jesus? Did you align your life with Jesus? Did you follow Jesus? Did you breathe and talk and live and spend and work for Jesus? And secondly, what did you do with the stuff I gave you? To him who much is given, much will be required. So the more I gave you, the more God says, I expect you to do with it, not for your purposes, but for, for my purposes. And so here's a prayer that all of us ought to pray. Middle of page 6. Do not... Lord, let me be too poor or too rich. Give me just what I need. If I have too much to eat, I might forget about you. If I, haven't, if I don't have enough, I might steal and disgrace your name. Notice that first line, don't let me get too poor. Many of us would put a period there. That's my prayer. Don't let me get too poor. But he says, or too rich. Do you know why? Because you can abandon God in both circumstances. And this prayer acknowledges that truthfully. But godliness with contentment is great gain. And that brings us to a new definition of wealth with which we'll conclude. A truly wealthy person is a person who is content with what he or she has. Now, we're going to, in the six sessions that follow then, look at God's principles for putting this big picture into practice. This week, here's what... I encourage you to do if you can find the time at all. There is a putting it into practice session section in your lesson. Putting it into practice at the end of every one of these sessions, including today. It's self-explanatory. It tells you what to do. You have the worksheets. You have the CD for you to do that. I encourage you then to do that this week. And let's begin together, myself included, this journey of realigning this area, this important area of our lives under the direction of the God who made us and the God who owns all that we are and have. Let's pray to him and we'll be dismissed. Our Father, we thank you for this time where we could look at these most important concepts from your word. Thank you, Lord God, for giving us the pages of Holy Scripture. Thank you, Lord, for giving us uh, teachers who have put together a workbook to help us fashion these principles and precepts to work them into our lives. So that, Lord, this is not one among many compartments that we have shielded off from your authority. You're our God. You're our creator. You own us and all that we have. And so, Lord, we want to use it, not misappropriate it. 
We want to use it for the purpose that you have given it. I pray for these next six weeks. I pray for these dear folks that you would grant them the health and the desire to be here, to go through this work together so that we can emerge from this time better equipped to bring glory to you and find the true, deep, abiding satisfaction that comes only with knowing that I am living for the purpose for which the God who made me has placed me here. Go with us this week, we ask in the name of Jesus. Amen.